welcome to the United Nations of Horror and the first episode of 2016. I am Becky Booth and joining me today is... Dia from Germany. Mark from the UK. Mike from Chicago. And um, we'll be looking today at the 2014 psychological supernatural film Last Shift by Anthony de Blasi. But before we start, we just have to mention that Lucard will be taking a little break during this month to work on other commitments. And we're going to miss him. But we wish him all the best of luck and look forward to his return in February. Absolutely. Yeah. So, first things first, Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you all had a nice, relaxing and horror-filled Christmas. Very much. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Family <Did> you... horror. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did you get any specific genre themed presents? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I got, got quite a few. Uh, I got the Monsters book from John Landers. Uh, as did I. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> How is that? Uh, for weightlifters, it's a great uh, training exercise. <laughs> Picture-wise, it couldn't give me a lot new pictures, but it's very, very, very great to look at. It, okay. it's, it's got a nice little intro about each section, you know. It, yeah. It's very brief, you know, like werewolves, there's a little intro, but then it's like you get several pages of werewolf yeah. movie pictures. <laughs> so it's great. It's really it's really nice. Lots of rat, Harryhausen and, uh, and vampire stuff and all sorts. A re- really nice book. Really nice book. Mm-hmm. Really nice. Are you glad that you got it... Um as a coffee table book instead of the Kindle version now. I am. I was looking at it on Kindle. I went to, on your recommendation, Becky, you told me it was in one of the, uh, the sort of on sale in one of the bookshops in the UK. So I went and had a look, really liked it. I thought, well, I'll check it on Kindle. And the, that one was a soft back version. Uh, text on Kindle, not as good at all. Nowhere near as good. Uh, but I liked the other version so much. I actually asked someone for the, I asked my mother for it for, for Christmas in hardback. So I got the hardback edition. Oh, Nice. Which is really yeah. nice, but even heavier. Yeah. <laughs> and, and takes a lot more space than your Takes up a lot of space. Well, I've got it on, on my leaning. I couldn't put it on my bedside uh, table. <laughs> it's leaning against my bedside table, so I've got easy access to it at bedtime, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had to, to uh, reconfigure my uh, bookshelves. Just for this book. It's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, In addition, I also got the full, the new remastered X-Files box set, uh, which I'm really excited to watch. Uh, I've got them all already on DVD, and I've had them for many years, pretty much since they came out on Region 1. I've had them, so I've had them uh, over 10 years um, and watched them all before, but I'm really looking forward to seeing seeing them all on HD uh, because they were filmed that way uh, and I've only watched a minute of the first episode and it looks fant- absolutely fantastic really fantastic so I'm looking forward to seeing them all again incredibly jealous um, <laughs> and uh, Mike did you get anything specific? Uh, yes I got um, I got like a film noir book which is really cool I got some movies like um What's it called? I got the Black Cat set from Arrow that just came out recently, which I haven't watched yet, but I hear it's awesome. Which Black Cat? Um, there it comes with two movies. It's uh the Lucio Fulci movie. Oh, great! And I forget who directed the other one. Uh, I forget their name. One one is called the Black Cat, and the other one is a long title. I I don't remember. 
The, the uh, Fulci one is a much underrated Fulci classic. That's what I've been told. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to watching those. Plus, I got Motel Hell and uh, The mm. Fun House, mm. which I, I thought Fun House was okay, but I love Motel Hell. Those are yeah. both first-time watches for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think Fun House is okay, but Motel Hell is probably better. Yeah, that movie's really, really good. Mm. Oh, brilliant. And that's and, all. And did you all have um, a nice new year? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, yes, yes. I it was. Oh man, I hate getting back to work though. But oh, it's yeah. terrible, isn't it? It's yeah. really a killer. <laughs> yes, I say that every week. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I think you don't know. Here in Germany, we had a big problem uh, with uh, the New Year parties. Yeah, in that Cologne. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. In Cologne, there were uh, a thousand people um, attacking women on the um, place before the uh, in front of the cathedral. Jesus! Yeah, coming yeah. in and out of the train station, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah in particular, yeah, yeah. sounds awful. Absolutely ah, it's, awful. It's 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 a strange uh, kind of archi architecture there. You have the uh, uh, train station. And the exit uh, goes directly in front of the cathedral on a big place. And all, uh, um, let's say, party people were uh, um, together there. And in between were, um, they say it's a sort of an organized crime. About 500 to 1,000 people just out for uh, attacking women and uh, stealing their purses and that stuff. Very, very dark. Yes, it's, uh, it's, they, they call it a new type of crime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is very worrying. Dance thieves. Is that what it's called? What's the literal translation? Dance thieves. Tanzdiebe. Tanzdiebe. They, they, they dance. Dance to the people, yeah, and uh, um, ram them and, and uh, push them and steal in this, uh, at the same time. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Especially for like, <laughs> I'm gonna say true horror, oh, real horror. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fa la 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 la. <laughs> Not everyone. Let's, let's go to the fun stuff again. <laughs> Thank you, Christmas. Um, as we all obviously had a bit of a break um, over the holidays, um, I know I watched quite a bit, um, but I know that everybody else has as well. Um, starting with Mike, you watched Society? Yes. Um, over the holidays, something else that I got was the Arrow release of Society, which I had never seen before. I knew nothing about it. And so it was quite a discovery for me. Now, I know, Dia, I believe you've seen it, right? I don't know mm -hmm. if, you, if you guys have also... I've not seen it, but I've heard no, really good. Is it Yusna, um yeah, who directed? Yeah, I've heard good, really good things about it, and I've heard it's very extreme, but really worth seeing. I, I, I saw it at the European premiere in Brussels back then. Really, with Yusna in attendance. Really great, really great on a big screen. It was uh, an experience. <laughs> That had to be a really interesting theater experience, like being yes. in there with a bunch of other people watching that. <laughs> because what it is, is uh, you've got this character uh, named Bill, played by Billy Warlock. And he lives in this, um, I don't remember which city, but he lives in the uppity, kind of richer part of this location. It's almost like, I don't know if it's California, but it's got that kind of vibe to it. 
Um, and his, he's kind of the black sheep of his family. Everybody else is really kind of snobbish, and uh, he's more uh, he's more down to earth, I'd say. And when it turns out that there might be something weird going on with some of the more rich people, including his sister and his parents, he kind of starts to discover this weird underground society. And I don't want to give too much away, but I kind of, you can see where it's going to go. You kind of figure it out, but you don't really know. (laughs) Like they do some really, it goes to some really twisted places. Like, you know, the outcome, but you don't know how exactly they're going to get there. And it it was just, Oh yeah. I was just (laughs) sitting there like, Jesus Christ. Like I was like, Oh my God. It, it was, it, it's wow. It <laughs> yeah, that's very, what I've heard. Very, very quiet in the theater at this point. It was just kind of one of those things where it ended, and I was like, "Wow, I, I didn't need to sleep tonight, anyways." All right. <laughs> yeah, it's a great movie though. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. I, I loved it, and wow. uh, Arrow's release looked gorgeous. A lot of great extras on there. They came also came with the sequel comic that I haven't read yet. Oh, that's comic. Awesome. Wow. Mm-hmm. That could be interesting. Yeah, I love it when they do one of their sales, but I end up spending so much money. Yeah. A, a lot of money went to Arrow this past Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Mac, you watched Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte? Yeah. Has anyone heard of this one? I have. I have, yeah. Uh, it's basically um, a more famous film is Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are stuck in a house together and slowly getting madder and sending each other madder and madder. It's basically an old... Uh, that particular film is kind of an old Dark House film. You know, family in a one location getting weirder and weirder towards each other this was um kind of not a follow-up but kind of in the same vein there was i think uh there was like a little spate of these sort of films where someone was stuck in a house and and either family or lovers or whatever it was a kind of trying to affect each other psychologically uh i think it started with late Diabolique, actually, the French film, kind of influenced a, a mini sort of wave of, of similar films in America. And Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte is kind of in that vein. It's Betty Davis. It starts um, with, um, like, in the 20s in a southern house uh, where there's this guy called Big Daddy, uh, you know, talk, talking a very strong southern accent. He's got a daughter who turns out to be have a, have a, a married lover who's played by a very young Bruce Dern. Who, who his sounds? First role. Say again. His first role was it really? I didn't realize yeah, that. Really. It was really good. He reminded me a lot of a young Jack Nicholson. He was all his speaking voice was really similar to a young Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but he was only in it briefly. But it was really good. Uh, <laughs> and then basically he gets chopped up fairly graphically yep. <laughs> with a cleaver. Uh, and the idea is that they never really figure out who was responsible. Chart. People think it was Charlotte. Some and Charlotte f- f- is pretty sure it wasn't her, and thinks it was her dad, uh, her you know, Big Daddy. But Big Daddy dies like a year later, and then it it goes to f- it jumps thirty or forty years, and and we've got an elderly um, 
Charlotte, who's who's played by Betty Davis in this house, slowly kind of going mad and not really sure of herself, but a kindly cousin comes and visits. Basically, they're all stuck in this house and dealing with this possibly growing levels of madness. We're, you're never quite sure. It's one, it was one of those. It was really good, but it was really long. It was a two hours, ten minutes, which is quite long for this kind of film. I really enjoyed yeah. it, though. It was definitely worth seeing. I'd definitely say go watch... Um, whatever happened to baby jane first uh, and there are a ton of these films. hammer in fact did a quite a lot of these psychological thrillers based along this idea of someone being stuck in a location and slowly being driven mad uh but they that was overshadowed greatly by their sort of gothic horror stuff um but they there's there's quite a lot of hammer films in this vein as well uh, i really quite enjoyed it it was, it was one i've been meaning to see and it just happened to come because it was on my rental list and i, I quite enjoyed it nice nice uh nice atmosphere nice photography joseph cotton was in it as one of the main actors too you know who's often worked in Orson wells movies uh so there were some big name actors in this um uh and, and betty davis was uh, outstanding and apparently joan crawford was also intended to be part of this but uh, she dropped out i think um she couldn't bear looking at betty davis anymore mm. after after whatever happened to baby jane so uh, it was olivia de Havilland stepped in uh, who's famous from Gone, Gone with the Wind? Um, you know, another southern kind of film. Uh, so it was, it was a southern gothic through and through. Definitely, it was a good one as well. It's definitely on my list. It's definitely a tongue twister as well. That title, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, it has this vibe of uh, a little song running through. You know, we we see it in we saw it in we see it in Last Shift. In fact, yeah. Uh, yeah. We also see it. It's famous in Freddy. Uh, you know, where there's a little song weird song poeming for it uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones there's other ones where uh, you know there's a girl just um, Rosemary's Baby I think had it a bit didn't it uh, mm. oh, did it la 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 all that stuff going through mm-hmm. it um, but the, this had it this is possibly the first instance of that actually maybe I'm not sure interesting mm. um, well moving on um, I watched Making a Murderer over the holidays, and I know that Dia did as well. Yes, yes, I finished it this morning. Oh, did you? Oh, brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. So just to kind of introduce it, um, I mean, anybody who's listened to the podcast before knows that I'm an avid true crime reader, so I jumped on the new Netflix series, um, which was released in 2015. And it charts a 10-year project in which the filmmakers Laura Riccardi and Moira Demos followed the trial of Stephen A. Avery. And without getting into too much information, um, because it's a 10-part series, so it's quite heavily detailed, uh, Avery was arrested in 1985 on a rape charge. And 18 years later, despite numerous opportunities within the legal system to exonerate him, he was finally released when DNA evidence proved that he didn't commit the crime. And then two years later, um, after filing a lawsuit against uh, Manitowoc County, and specifically several county officials that were involved in his arrest, he was then arrested for the murder of Teresa Holbuck, who was a photographer that was last seen on um, his family's property because they own a salvage yard and she was coming to photograph one of his vehicles as she regularly did. And as the increasingly bizarre and outrageous events of of the trial unfold, Brendan Dassey, who is Stephen's nephew, is also arrested and tried for the murder of Teresa. Um, 
And I know, obviously, we shouldn't kind of reveal spoilers, but I have a little bit of a problem with that when you were talking about true stories. I mean, this is um, an account of, you know, a woman that's been murdered, and it's also a human rights story because the documentary very much exposes judicial corruption. And I would definitely say that it's necessary viewing... um, you know, I'll say that people will be outraged and completely obsessed with the series. I watched it actually twice over Christmas, even on Christmas Day. Um, Mm. And I'm quite happy that the publicity has prompted further investigation without giving too much away. Um, But, Dia, what did you think of it now you finished it? Um, I was really shocked about the the system in the USA, the juristic system. Um, but also, I'm not so sure if uh, Stephen is really innocent. I don't really, know. that's interesting. Yeah, you have no other suspect in this case. There is absolutely nobody with a motive or any uh, history of, of murder and violence uh, and with all the um, guys who get uh, to court also. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not so sure. It is a bit of a mystery, and I did look up some of the theories on mm-hmm. um, the internet afterwards as to you know what people thought about who the, the murderer could be. But I would agree with certain parts of the film in that people close to her, her family and friends, were not investigated, and certain parts of their stories didn't really make sense. Um, but it doesn't kind of dwell on those too much. And it doesn't really dwell, um, our focus, I should say, on Teresa Halbach at all, which yeah. really I think it should have done. But, you know, at the same time, it is a documentary about Stephen's trial. Mm. And um, I would encourage people to watch it, even if, you know, true crime isn't something that necessarily, you know, you would watch. Um, because, like I say, I think it's very much a kind of necessary watch because of the human rights um, would yeah. you agree with that, dear? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a must-see. It, it, it's uh, um, more suspenseful as uh, Hitchcock's thriller in parts. It's, uh, and, and, and it's addictive. You start at the first episode and you're in. It's uh, unbelievable. How many yeah. parts is it, may I ask? Ten. And Ten how long is each part? part? One hour? So it's One ten hour. hours. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you can't stop. <laughs> you really can't. And I've heard so many people say that they've literally sat down and just binged watched it. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's very similar to um, the documentaries uh, West of Memphis and the Paradise Lost yeah. Yeah. Um, series, which, of course, um, recount the case of the three Memphis teenagers uh, arrested for the murders of three younger boys. Um, and also Dear Zachary, a letter from a father to his son. Um, which is a Canadian film. And again, if you haven't seen that, I believe it was on US Netflix. Uh, it is, sorry, because that, that's where I caught it um, a while ago. And that one I really would encourage people to watch. I, I'll say it's challenging. I, the, the last 30 minutes absolutely ruined me um, because I wasn't aware of the case. But it really, again, exposes kind of neglect and um, inadequacy within the, the legal system. Um, and it's a really unique film because... The maker was friends with the man that was murdered um, from being, you know, young boys. And he has film footage of them both through all those years. And he's documenting um, his um, 
the, the trial after his murder and everything and the events that unfold and it's very similar to making a murderer it's absolutely bizarre and strange and you just you wouldn't believe what happens mm. so i would definitely also encourage people to watch that uh, this making a murderer sounds something to watch definitely it's something that i was it's kind of i was aware of the buzz but i didn't know what it was i didn't know if it was a drama um so it sounds but, like cereal uh, yeah it has been compared to that and also something else called the jinx but i haven't seen that oh, so oh yeah listen to it if that's a podcast um but there is actually a book about um Stephen avery that i've also picked up and interestingly mm. dear the opening of it um is very different it doesn't mention certain details um that we know to be true from what actual the actual person has said themselves in the documentary on film it doesn't go into any of that and it completely ignores it so that's interesting i haven't finished it yet but um i'd mm. recommend that to you after watching uh, do you have a title um i will find that for you <laughs> i think it's called the innocent killer okay which said a lot about the uh yeah, The Innocent Killer, A True Story of a Wrongful Conviction and Its Astonishing Aftermath. The longest title in the world there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by Michael Grishback. Um So, yeah, I definitely picked that up. Like I say, I've not finished it myself, but it's just so interesting to um, read in comparison to the documentary because I know there's been a lot of criticism leveled yeah. at the documentary for being biased. Yeah, it's, it's just showing you one side. It's, it's definitely biased. So, um, but like we say, it raises a lot of questions, though. So mm. that's definitely one to watch. Um, but moving on to something a little bit <laughs> more lighthearted, Mark, you watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I did the. Uh, this is the uh, Jim Carrey film, mm. uh, which I know gets a lot of grief. Uh, I can kind of understand it because the original Grinch cartoon uh, with Boris Karloff and Howard Keel and and that Chuck Jones animation is really terrific. I really like that one I, i'm quite familiar with that cartoon but i have to say uh I, yeah, this is a quite a good christmas family film and uh i remember taking my oldest son to it when he was i think eight or nine um at the cinema and i thought it was rather good then uh apart from one part one part uh and i i've watched it several times since and every time i watch it i think it's better and better actually i think jim carrey gives a great performance jim carrey is really fantastic in this uh there's only one real um poor part in it which is where a little girl has to sing a song but that's right at the beginning and it's okay it's kind of sweet it just stops the film dead for a bit but then once once jim carrey comes back it's kind of fun again uh i think this is really imaginative and fun film uh there's a lot of detail in there there's lots of he uh, some of the jokes you think i think at the time i thought were a bit oh that's a bit contemporary and that won't age well but in fact they do age well there's like a joke on action films for example he's driving the grinch is driving a little car and he crashes and he runs away and it has a massive hollywood type explosion <laughs> and you see him slow you know slow motion flying through the air a bit like tom cruise in one of the mission impossible films kind of thing but that joke still works uh, and the whole thing works i just just think it's a, a really good film and every time i watch it it goes up higher in my estimation actually is that uh is that has anyone else seen this film 
Yeah, 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 I'm not a big fan. Not a years fan. Years ago, years ago. <laughs> That's I, I, not terrible. Mike is the Grinch of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, it seems like I always am. I, I guarantee you, I'm going to be later today. Too. Um, I just, I just love the the script's really clever. There's one part where he act, the Grinch accidentally starts talking in rhyme, and then realizes, and you can see the look of horror on his face that he's slipped into that Doctor's use way of talking, and it's just a nice meta joke about about the whole thing. It just makes me laugh. And anyway, I like, I like the makeup. The the makeup is fantastic and still yeah. stands up on a great big screen. You know, really close up. That makeup really stands up. Apparently, Jim Carrey had to go through special forces training for pain handling because the contact lenses were so painful. He went through, you know, how to how yeah. to tuck that pain away and put up with it, which is quite a lot. You know, quite an intense thing for an actor to go through for a whole film. Yeah, but but uh, if you get uh, two millions or three millions for it, mm. um, you can do. Oh it. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> makes it a lot. Easier. I'm sure he got more than that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, back then he was a, a really big star. It's, I mean, it's yeah. a Ron Howard film as well, yeah. so it's got that kind of Spielbergian sappiness. But I don't mind personally. Mm. So uh, yeah, I liked it. No, I really liked it as well. And um, I must admit, I did think the makeup on the Grinch, particularly, was a little bit scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it was intended to be, especially that first close-up when you, yeah. when you first see him. It's, it reminded me a bit of in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang when you get the first close-up of the child catcher. It yeah. kind of reminds me of that. <laughs> uh, and I do. I actually saw that in the cinema when I was about five. And I, I, it was in it. My mother used to take me a lot to cinema. And we were in a fairly empty cinema, and she used to let me sit on the back of the seat, like on the you know. Instead of sitting in the seat, sit on the back of the seat. And apparently when that came up, I fell over into the road behind. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was so shocked. <laughs> so, and I must have been, I think I looked out, but I must have been five or six. <laughs> oh, bless. <laughs> so uh, do you like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? I love Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah. Are you not traumatised then? <laughs> no, I'm not traumatised. I love Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, I think I've, I've got a bit of a thing for the Queen. <laughs> I think that developed at a young age. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> next one, please. <laughs> um, dear, you watched Evidence? Yeah, something horror, for example, <laughs> for change. Uh, Evidence is such a, a, a typical movie I discovered while browsing Netflix. And you saw, uh, you see a poster with a guy in a welder's mask and uh, a flamethrower, and you think, hmm, sounds great. Uh, it's a movie about um, a massacre at an abandoned gas station where some teenagers were, um, yeah, how can you tell it when a welder with a, a what do you call this? this um, Flamethrower. Uh, 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 it's just called a flamethrower. Yeah, no, it's it's not a flamethrower. Oh, oh um, an arc torch. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Using this to kill uh, people, it's a nice uh, change. And uh, this movie is interesting because um, it's mostly found footage. In the beginning, you see the police arrive at the station and the massacre is done. Everything is burned and they find uh, burned bodies and uh, parts of bodies and uh, also a camera and some um, mobile phones. 
and the uh, one half of the movie plays at the police station where a specialist uh, is uh, checking the video material and the other half is a found footage um, slasher movie, so to say. And they are intercut. Uh, so you see the, the welder coming to his victim and the camera starts shaking and uh, then the camera pulls away from a monitor and you're in the police station where they are checking the video material. And what's very funny is uh, you have one specialist who has almost, uh, I would say, Jedi-like uh, abilities because he sees uh, things in the pictures nobody else can see. And you have a hacker who is uh, absolutely um, fantastic in uh, zooming into videos and getting out little details. And uh, it's not believable, but it works, strangely enough. <laughs> you sit the, the whole time you watch the movie, you are thinking, hmm, and nobody could do this, but uh, in the uh, whole movie it works. It's great. It's a great little thriller, uh, very cheap. Um, the director, Ola Tunde Osunami. Osun, Osun, oh my God. Uh, I try it again. <laughs> the, the director, Ola Tunde Osunzani. That's genau. his name. <laughs> it's a, a black African director who has made another movie before. And you probably have seen it. It's uh, The Fourth Kind which also was a oh. footage movie with uh, aliens. Do you remember this thing? Yeah. I know the name, I haven't seen Not it. Not fondly. It's, it's, it's uh, also an, another kind of found footage movie, like evidence. And I think it's very interesting what this guy has to offer. It's not the usual stuff you uh, expect from this movie. And it was out this year. Sorry, last year. Yeah. Sorry, last year. No, it's from 2013 and oh, now 13. on Netflix. Okay, cool. On Netflix. Okay, right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, US. You can click it right now. <laughs> oh, definitely sounds like a bit of a melting pot. I'll, yeah. I'll check that one out. Um, and Mike, I'm very excited to hear what you thought of the forest. Well, you you shouldn't be excited because uh, it was my first movie of 2016 and it sucks. <laughs> so. <laughs> This is uh, this is the forest. It just came out here in the states last night, and it stars uh, Natalie Dormer. And it's about the uh, infamous suicide forest in Japan. There's a whole Japanese word for it, but I I ain't gonna try to say that. It's the suicide forest, and the whole mythos is people who are sad go in there, and there's something about the ghosts in there that kind of pull them, and then they kill themselves. They, you know, they hang themselves and stuff. You can read all about it. It's actually really, really messed up and creepy. But this film, uh, Natalie Dormer, she plays two characters. The main character, her name is Sarah. And she's got this uh, twin sister, Jess. Uh, Jess has gone away to be a teacher in Japan. And one day she catches word that she has wandered into the suicide forest and hasn't been seen for a few days. Now, Jess and Sarah, they had this kind of you know how people say they have, like, a twin connection? They can, like, sense whenever one of the others is in danger? Well, these two actually have, like, some kind of weird supernatural bond like that. And well, they, there's just, like, a, a vibe that they get. Like a sixth sense. And 
everybody is saying, oh, Jess is dead, Jess is dead, but Sarah is saying, no, I can still feel her. She's alive. So she heads over to – her husband just lets her head over to this suicide forest by herself. So she flies over to Japan and uh, enlists the help of these two guides. One's a reporter played by Taylor Kinney, and the other is named – I mean, these Japanese names. I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to try to say these, but this other guide there. And they go into the forest, and it's all about trying to find Jess while these weird kind of things happen. And it is the most generic, it's one of the most generic movies, horror movies I've seen in such a long time. Every single scare is a jump scare. And they're all telegraphed. None of them work. They're all really lame. It's really boring. It's just kind of a lot of hiking around in this forest. It was nothing going on. And PG-13, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's no really creepy imagery at all. And some of the imagery just doesn't even make sense. Like, there's this one demon girl at one point, and it's just made no sense with anything. It's And uh, some of the actors are good. That's what saves it. You got this really terrible script. Like, none of the dialogue's any good. It's all cheesy and lame. But Natalie Dormer and Taylor Kinney, they do sell some of it. I'll give that to them. And I'll also give the film... That it's got a good look to it. Uh, a lot of the, cin- the cinematography and everything looks actually really good on the big screen. But the movie has just got no depth. Uh, it takes twists and turns that you see coming a mile ahead. Uh, there's one, I don't want to give it away, but there is one kind of story that comes up and you're like, ooh, where is this going to go? And then it goes exactly where you think it's going to go and you hope it doesn't. <laughs> like, just nothing leads up to anything. And it's... It even has the generic, I'm, the, the generic horror ending, uh, which I'm, I'm not going to give away the conclusion of the film, but of course they have to have the ghosts come and pop out of the screen at the very end before we go to credits, which I'm so tired of. <laughs> Can we please stop doing that? Please. I always know it's going to happen. <laughs> There's an awful lot of horror films that will benefit from having the last 30 seconds or 5 seconds or 10 cut, just cut, taken out completely. Yeah, like, Unfriended did the same thing where it's like, I really like the movie. Then you get to the ending, it's like, guys, that wasn't even necessary. Like, come, like, come <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like, for example, I like, um, uh, what's it, the Paranormal Activities, the first film. I really like it, but the last five seconds, just don't do that. You don't need to do that. You know, it's, it's like that. Did you see yeah. the alternate endings? Uh, I did, yeah. Um, I, I think so. I'm certainly familiar with what happened. Have we discussed this before? We might have talked about this in an earlier podcast. Well, I'm kind of familiar. There are several different endings, yeah, for sure. Yeah, just there's definitely one that was um, a lot more kind of subtle. Yeah, right. For, for sure, that I, I preferred. But well, that's mm. really sh- a shame, there, Mike, because I was personally, <laughs> I was really looking forward to that. Yeah, um, I always hold out hope, but it's January. And I, I always forget, oh, that's right, we don't get good movies <laughs> in January. We just never do. And I always hold out hope. But, like, I'm really worried about that other movie, The Boy. Really worried about that. Mm-hmm. That's a, a great trailer. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we'll see. But, yeah, this is, you can avoid it. It's generic, it's boring, and it's just dumb. It's just stupid. Well, I would definitely say to um, anyone interested in um, that particular forest, and again, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name, but there are a couple of really good documentaries, and I'll um, post links to them because, you know, I've always been kind of fascinated with the subjects, but I've heard a lot of kind of cultural criticism against the film. 
um, in that it's just like a Western um, kind of... Uh, it's not looking at the issues that are actually underlying Japanese society and culture that should be addressed and apparently aren't talked about from an article that I read and it's kind of put a very Western stamp on that and it seems to, um, in terms of Japanese audience, have really um, come under criticism but obviously it's not a great film either. Um, So that's a bit of a shame. But um, moving on... Um, I caught Sherlock, um, The Abominable Bride, yes. which was uh, back for a one-off special on New Year's Day. Um, and I've heard quite mixed reviews about it, but I absolutely loved it. Um, and it basically travels to Victorian England as Sherlock via a drug-induced daydream um, within his mind palace, constructs an unsolved case from the 1900s to deal with the trauma really, and the mystery of Moriarty's apparent return. Um, In summary, it's creepy, it's fantastically gothic, and it had some belting one-liners that had me laughing throughout, and now I can't wait for the new series. Um, Did anybody else catch this? Yep. Not yet. Yes, I caught it too. What did you think? I liked it. I liked it a lot. I, I, I like Cumberbatch as Sherlock and uh, putting him in the real time uh, was a great idea. And I liked uh, how they uh, solved this riddle of uh, why he is in the past. Yeah. Um, I I really like the past stuff. Uh, I yeah. just wish the whole thing had been past stuff. Uh, I just like the whole thing. I like the... the what was happening i kind of did work it out fairly early on actually uh which i don't usually do i'm usually you know completely flummoxed to the end but fairly early on i could see where it was going and and why certain things were happening and stuff like that i also liked the fact it referenced some of the classic stories um it referenced one called one i think that's called the five pips but i could be wrong but i definitely saw some elements of uh, classic Sherlock Holmes stories in there um uh, and it was it was good to see Cumberbatch doing that version of Sherlock though I think he's better in the mo- modern version um uh, I did have a few I, I, I don't want to spoil it for anyone so I don't I don't know it felt like a well I think this isn't a spoiler it felt like a basically a big prologue for the next series rather yeah. than its own film let's put it that way that's how it felt to me, but I kind of enjoyed it. But it was like, it was like, uh, okay, uh, I did give up at a point and think, okay, I'm just going to watch this and enjoy it for what it is. I don't really, you know, f- I'm not. I wasn't feeling it as well as I could have, and I, I didn't think it was going to go anywhere, and it kind of didn't for me. But I could kind of see how someone else would l- like it better. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I think you've got to kind of take it as it is for sure. And I can see why people didn't like it. Um, but I personally had a great form of that and I really liked the kind of resolution. Um, I think there was a thing in it uh, that I don't want to spoil, but I'll be happy to tell any of you if you want to ask me directly afterwards. I think there was a thing in it that's basically set up a whole dynamic in the next series. But if I describe it now, it is, I think, a bit of a spoiler for this. So I'm not going to say it here. moving on um then you watch gremlins as well Uh, i did um um, yeah yeah i do get into full christmas movie mode uh i watch a good 10 uh, christmas movies over over christmas i have got a whole rotation of about 25 
but I, I, I usually watch about 10 in any one year. Gremlins was one of the ones I watched. I really enjoyed this film, though it is a very, very tonally odd film. It's got it's half Steven Spielberg Smaltz, you know, uh, in the small town America in the same vein as Back to the Future and stuff like that. And it's half this gleefully violent um, sort of Looney Tunes kind of stuff uh and i just really enjoy it uh and i do remember when it came out it was kind of a bit people were a little confused it didn't come out at christmas by the way in the uk i'm pretty sure it came out in the middle of summer uh, <laughs> but it is evolved into this christmas film now because you know there's so many christmas elements in it uh, i really enjoy this film uh, i always have uh but it, it's got it's got it's a very tonally odd film though but i enjoy it I need to watch it all the way through because I've never actually done that. You've never... Oh, wow. There is this also weird element of, uh, you know, Phoebe Cates telling you about the the day they discovered her her father Mm -hmm. up the chimney, which (laughs) always makes me laugh. But apparently Joe Dante was really... Yeah, well, it's it's ridiculous. It's 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 a sort of parody. Joe Dante was so angry that people didn't find it funny that he actually yeah. referenced it again in Gremlins 2 and took the joke up a level, you know, by... I, don't, I can't remember what it is. Her uncle was uh, killed at Easter or something something like that. Uh, Joe Dante intended it to be funny, but apparently a lot of people don't find it funny. But I do. I think not, it's it's so ridiculous, it's funny. Not everyone likes uh, Joe Dante. Though. That's you true. <laughs> I love Dante. I love everything he made. He's directing... Oh, what is it? Even uh, bearing the axe. Say again. Mm. Even his last yeah. movie, bearing the axe. Yeah, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. that. No. Bearing the axe is a um, let's say it's a homage movie for eighties horror fans. I think. Oh, I do like Joe Dante. Yes. Yeah. He's um he's directing um oh, what is it? I don't know. I'm gonna check this quickly. He's directing something significant really soon. I'm trying to find it. Uh, no, and I can't find it at all. Forget it. It's okay. okay. Carry on. <laughs> and um, do you watch Tag? Yeah, yeah. Has anybody heard about Tag? No. Just no. for you. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps you have seen the viral trailer about. Uh, it starts with two buses full of uh, Japanese schoolgirls in uniforms playing and singing in the bus, and um, suddenly. Something happens, the roof of the bus gets uh, ripped off and all the schoolgirls get uh, cut in the middle. And you have only the legs and the legs standing there and uh, falling down and only one girl survives this. And she flees, runs uh, over the street, uh, is followed by wind and everyone, everybody who comes to, close to her uh, gets cut in half uh, from the wind. I don't know. Have you seen this uh, little trailer? No. No reaction. Oh, my. <laughs> I have to see this. Uh, exactly. This was uh, what you uh, got, got as a viral trailer. And it's the beginning of the movie. And uh, she flees, she runs uh, to a little river, washes uh, her uniform and uh, goes three or four uh, miles uh, further and uh, appears in a school where nothing has happened and everybody of the girls are alive. 
And she goes into the classroom and the teacher uh, pulls out a big gun and starts shooting all the girls. And she uh, turns around and is uh, in front of the school again and everything is okay again. And so uh, you have many, many, many of those scenes where every, guy, every girl gets uh, violated and killed uh, uh, except her. And um, you think you're in a dream or in a, a parallel dimension and the girls are also talking about it. And in the end you get a solution which is much, much stranger than anything you uh, imagined. Uh, I won't go deeper into details, it's just you have to see this movie. It's, it's very strange, it's very Japanese. The director is Shion Shono. And uh, he has never done a movie before, and it's based on a Japanese novel. I haven't re read it yet, because my Japanese isn't so great, um, but it's uh, um, an experience. You, you can't imagine what they are doing with these girls in the movie. It's very violent, and uh, yeah, okay, the effects aren't so great, but it's an interesting experience. It sounds intriguing. It does yeah. sound intriguing, yeah. Uh, the original title, uh, by the way, is Riyaru Onigoku. Perhaps it helps. <laughs> 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 I will post a little trailer on the page, uh, on the Facebook group uh, tomorrow. Cool. It's yeah. definitely one for my list. And yeah. Mike, you've watched Hell and Back as well? Uh, yes. First, uh, uh, Mark, that... that uh the Joe Dante movie where you were talking about was it the man with the kaleidoscope eyes is that what you were thinking of no it was it was it was a TV episode of something oh Legend of Tomorrow he's doing an episode of that no I know he's doing that but there was something else which is like much more famous but I can't remember what it is it's not on the IMDB but I did hear uh, about it there, so. there was something Dante posted something yes Dante posted month. it himself yes he yeah. did but I can't remember what it is it's annoying me now <laughs> just ask him <laughs> okay, no. hey, Joe, if you're listening you to this Joe <laughs> come on Joe uh, anyways what was I talking about oh Helen Back okay this is a movie that I believe got a, a very small release in, this past October and it, just this past week it came out on Blu-ray um, and it's a, a stop motion movie it's, almost, it's very uh, Henry Selleck ish it's about these Two dudes uh, played by Nick Swardson and um, who's the other guy? Uh, T.J. Miller, and they have this friend played by Robert Gull, and they make this blood oath, and he actually gets sent down to hell. And so it's about these two guys, kind of losers, who have to go back, who have to go down to hell to rescue their friends. And it's, as I said, it's it's uh, basically a Henry Selleck movie, except with the like dick and fart jokes. It's. Because it's written directed by some of the guys from Robot Chicken. And wow. it really has that feel to it in good ways and in bad ways. The movie's only 85 minutes long and it really doesn't fill out that length, which is already very short. But it just doesn't feel like it's a lot of because they come from Robot Chicken, they're used to writing bits. And so it's like it's just a lot of skits and bits one after another so by the time you get to the second half and the story kicks in 
you don't really care. You, I mean, it just it kind of gets boring. But uh, although it, it is very juvenile kind of humor, some of it worked for me. I thought it was. I don't think this is a great movie, but I think it's kind of funny. There were certainly scenes that made me laugh out loud, pretty hard actually. But I don't know. Overall, I thought it was kind of uneven. But I think there's going to be a following out. There's going to be a cult following for it. And yeah, it, it definitely could have been worse. But and the the, uh, the animation itself, it's very old school, and I think it looks gorgeous. Mm. It looked great. And so yeah, I mean, I'd recommend. If it sounds like something you'd be interested in, check it out. But if you listen to the to what I'm saying and you're like, nah, that sounds dumb, don't you're not gonna like it. Obviously, I, I like the sound of it. Is it streaming or uh, did you see it in theater? Oh, um, I bought it on Blu-ray. It just ah. came out in the states, at least. It's not out in the UK. I just checked. Uh, yeah, Germany, I'll... no way. <laughs> um, I'll keep an eye out for it though. If you go to voodoo.com, you can uh, rent it or buy it digitally. Oh, okay. That sounds all right. Yes. And cool. another one for this. <laughs> um, there's something I want... Actually, we were talking about Joe Dante. I just something I wanted to mention something about Joe Dante. I actually do frequently visit a website he's heavily involved in called uh, Trailers from Hell, yeah, which great. is a really good... If you've got two or three minutes and you want to watch something, go to Trailers from Hell because basically it's trailers from famous and infamous films with a director or someone involved in film production just talking for two or three minutes about why they like that particular film over the top of the trailer. It's really fun. It's really fun. Joe Dante does an awful lot of them. Um, and and John Landis too. Uh, so it's really a good site to go visit. So I just wanted to recommend that site. Sounds good. Each Monday you've got a new, new trailer. One, yes, and I think really? they may have done stuff like I don't think they've done Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, but I think they've done mm. whatever happened to Baby Jane recently, uh, and they're always fun. You know, it's like Harryhausen films and old Viking movies and Italian movies. It's really fun. That's awesome. I love stuff like that. It's really good. Yeah, I never heard of it. I'm gonna check it out. So finally, I watched Dread. Um, yeah which was, I think, the directorial debut for de Blasi, who um, directed Last Shift, that we'll be talking about today. Um, not the Judge Dredd one, right? No, not that one. Not Carl Urban? <laughs> <laughs> uh, do not refer to it in those tones, please. <laughs> <laughs> I the know, good I one. Well, I have a soft spot for the, for the Stallone version. Yeah, that's all right. I, but like, the, I like both. The new one is way better. The, I like the Stallone one, but the new one is fantastic. Yeah. In 3D, in the cinema, it was... It was amazing. It was. I prefer my... Not my Caliban, but I prefer Caliban in um, Lord of the Rings. That's how I see him. But... um, So I watched um, Dread in preparation for um, the cast today, and I really loved it. It's um, based on Clive Back, a short story, which I know that Dia mentioned on the Hellraiser episode. Um... And I thought the the kind of subject, you know, a university film project exploring trauma and kind of deepest fears, um, which are then kind of taken to the next level, was really fascinating. And the ending in particular, I thought was brilliant. Um, but I haven't actually read the original uh, short story. So, Dia, what did you think of the kind of comparison between the two? 
I read the story uh, in 1986 or 1987 the last time, so I don't know really. I was uh, fascinated by the movie and uh, tried to read the story again, but uh, hadn't find, couldn't find the time up to now. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> It's so long ago, uh, I don't remember anything from the story. No, I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, I need to yeah. get back but, onto my kind of Clive Barker. But the movie feels like a Barker movie. I yes, think. yeah, it really. It's, it's a really dark, nasty story. Yeah, uh, but not overly violent. But uh, it, it works. It works a lot. No, completely. And it kind of hints at, at things that you don't necessarily yeah. see everything, but uh, you just don't want to see. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, just like the kind of the tones, I think, and um, I thought the characters were were. Um, sorry, the leads um, were all brilliant. I was quite impressed with Jackson Rathbone, um, who I'd only really seen before in Twilight. So he kind of redeemed himself here. And um, Sean Evans as Quaid, who kind of carries the story, really. Um, I thought that he was um, quite a standout. And I definitely um, recommend this if um, anybody's kind of caught last shift and, and quite enjoyed that. And I definitely would like to make my way through the rest of de Blas's work after seeing yeah. this. I, I only seen Missionary uh, so far uh, from him, uh, absent from the both movies we're talking about. Uh, and this is also great. And there are uh, two other de Blasi movies I'm searching for. Yeah, same. And I think... Um, As we'll get into Last Shift, I know that that's kind of um, been quite praised for its sound design. And it seemed that Dread was very much yeah. um, a kind of, I know it yeah. deals with painting and the arts, but the lighting in it I thought was fantastic. That the use of shadow and light really, really stood out for me. And it's as if he's kind of focusing on one particular element of filmmaking um, to kind of great effect in each of those two films. So I'd be interested to see if he kind of does that in others. Mm -hmm. But, um, uh, yeah, that's after watching last shift, I'm definitely interested in uh, watching something else by this director. So, um, moving on to the main feature for this week, um, which is last shift. And um, we will play the trailer first and then we will, um, go into the film. So here is a trailer for last shift. Do we really have to do this now? I'm, I'm literally about to start my first shifts. Anybody in here? You are the lucky rookie to work the very last shift in this mausoleum. All 911 calls have been rerouted to the new station, so it should be quiet. Sanford Police Department. Help me. I'm trapped. I think they might all be dead. Dancing flight. I'll destroy your home. 
the ones that lie within your heart, the ones you pray for. There's so much blood splashing around in there. She fell to her knees and bowed to the That's what Payman means. It was destined. The king of hell. Did um, you guys uh, come across uh, Dubois's work? Did you come to this film first? Yeah, this is the first time I've seen anything by this director, as far as I know. I don't know his other films, so I may have seen some, but I don't think I have. Uh, so I only watched it on. You mentioned it about three or four uh, shows back, and so I was interested in that. And then we discussed doing it here, so I watched it for this show. And is everybody humming the, the theme tune? Because <laughs> I've been humming it all day. Uh, I wasn't sure if... Was it meant to be the Star Spangled Banner? I was. It sounded a bit like the Star... I, at first time I heard it, I thought... Oh, was it? That sounds like the Star that. Spangled Banner, but I don't think it was. It just... It sounded like it, and I wasn't even sure till near the end it wasn't. And I don't, I'm still not entirely sure it wasn't, but I think it wasn't. If it, if it was, it's way more political than I thought the film <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's just, oh, it's definitely uh, gets stuck in your head. I'll say that for it. But it's very creepy as well. And we've also um, talked briefly about the sound design in the film, and that's the mm. first thing that opens it, um, isn't it? Before you actually see any visuals, you hear um, that kind of creepy, um, almost choir-like um, song, and that really kind of set the tone for me. Um, but to get into the plot. Jessica Lauren, who is a rookie police officer on her first assignment, is ordered to take the last shift at a police station before it's permanently closed. Um, her mother pleads with Jessica not to take the job, as her father, who was also a police officer, was killed while on duty. And this happens in a little scene outside of the uh, police station. And then she enters and it's basically um, a single location film. Jessica surprises her commanding officer, Sergeant Cohen, um, and he demands that she turn around after he's been, I think, banging on lockers or something. It's a very strange mm. introduction to him. What did you make of the kind of introduction to Sergeant Cohen? Because that was a really strange scene. That was weird. I, do they ever explain why he freaks out like that? I didn't, I, at least I didn't get it. There was, I think there's a lot of elements to this film that are kind of left unexplained, maybe, you know, I think, intentionally. But for me, it looked like he was banging lockers and there's later yeah. scene in the film involving lockers. So I was wondering yeah. if things were happening to him like we see later on, maybe. I thought it was... Uh, my initial thing is he was trying to open a locker, but there's nothing, no evidence to suggest that later in the film. I thought we'd see a bashed-in locker. I really was expecting to see some sort of bashed-in locker and her then find something in it, but that didn't. It didn't turn out that way. So I've got no idea how to interpret that really. Uh, the turnaround thing—I don't, I don't know. It's like he didn't want her to see what he was doing, but it was all a bit it, late then. I, I don't know. I don't know. That was weird. The whole movie is weird. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. I, I like. I really like the beginning of the movie 
because in those uh, four or five minutes until she is alone, you got the, her backstory because of the phone phone conversation with her mother. You got uh, her job her job description from the, the sergeant. And uh, now she's alone. We are four minutes into the movie, and the movie really starts from this point on. It's so great, uh, it's so uh, simple and great, uh, greatly done. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it sets up everything very yep. quickly, and it's very simple in terms of the plot, but it's yep. still, I think, quite engaging, um, especially as, like I say, it's single location, and generally she's the only person um, that's um, you know on camera throughout. Mm. And and you get a, a great impression on the layout of the police station because uh, the sergeant um, shows her around, and you can see uh, each um, each room, and you see where they are located uh, because you definitely need that later in the movie. It's so simple and intelligently. Uh, yeah, it is, inte it is intelligent opening scene and set up. Yeah. Apart from the oddity around the sergeant and the nature of the sergeant as well was a bit odd. Yeah, yeah. just barking orders. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it makes you uh, uncomfortable uh, in, in the beginning, I think. Yeah. yeah. The fact he just tells her to turn around and know it and doesn't explain it or anything. Yeah. He, he's basically comes. He's, he's set up as a quite a dick, really, mm. um, and he continues with that. You know, he plays that little trick on her, mm. and that's odd as well. You know about you know the route, everything in here could like destroy this city or, or something like that. And then he just like says it's a joke. It's like that's 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 a bit psycho, really. <laughs> I think that was, well, I took it to be a kind of meta reference um, to Assault on Precinct 13 um, because he leads her on a brief tour, like Dee was saying, and then he explains that the reason she is on duty there instead of just a security guard because the new police station has opened down the street, whatever, and it's just the last night that that one's open and all the calls have been routed to the other police station and they just need somebody there. He says that she's waiting for a hazmat team to collect evidence um, that's quite difficult to dispose of. Mm. And he obviously makes the joke, you know, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be the last line of defence against a group of people who will try um, everything to get to this evidence. I thought that was a kind of... Yeah. I mean, there was. I think there was some light, some, certainly some words that were straight out of us all in Precinct 13. It felt like, I could have been wrong, but it, it you know, talking about rooting to the one down the road, that was from Assault on Precinct 13. It did feel, I mean, it didn't, pursue that line of uh uh of of uh, it didn't in, in no other respect did it really remind me of assault and precinct 13 apart from the setup after that point but it definitely reminded me of assault and assault on precinct 13 where, when he was saying that no definitely um and then cohen um leaves um, after giving her his phone number, case of an emergency um but he tells her not to leave the police station um no matter what so she's then um, waiting basically throughout the night for um, Hazmat to arrive. Um, she falls asleep but wakes up when she hears knocking and she sees nobody at the door. But when she turns around, a homeless man is standing in the hallway. He refuses to leave and actually pees on the floor. And Jessica then takes him to a holding cell and she suddenly becomes locked in as the door closes and locks behind her and the lights go out 
when a bloody-faced person surprises her in the door's window and she drops a flashlight um, before an unidentified person picks it up and taunts her. Um, she obviously thinks that it's the homeless man, but when the lights turn back on, he's actually on the other side of the room. Mm. And obviously this is the first kind of inkling of supernatural um you know, supernatural elements throughout the film, but what did you think to the character of the homeless man? Pointless. Um, a little pointless. He reminded me of Hagrid, to be honest. <laughs> right. Um, but it was, I think uh, his first introduction, what we see him from behind, was really good. Um, really good. Uh, but as Mike said, that his whole character was almost point he was he was really uh what what does this a, a, a MacGuffin kind of mm-hmm. he was there to yeah. serve the plot and no other obvious reason yeah he's just there to come back later as a terrible special effect i don't want to uh, give anything away but there's well, an effect with him later on that i kind really. of a terrible so but also a, a, a reason for her to make another phone call uh, uh but it didn't serve much else it, but i did like it um and this whole scene i remember thinking at the scene looking at my watch and thinking there's an arrow this left how on earth is this going to keep up this level mm-hmm. of tension you know starting this a really well done level of tension early on oh yeah um but i thought how how would i get and in fact the i think it was a sign that the director it then eased us into a more relaxed scene in a reasonably acceptable way that is a sign of his his abilities actually but it was super tense this this part super tense yeah i would definitely agree I, there were several kind of jump scares not necessarily like the the sound like you would get a normal visceral, a normal visceral scare in in a you know you kind of formulate horror film, but just the visuals and the tension when the can the camera basically you know cut to something else, it would just make me kind of jump. Um, but that's because I know exactly of what the, you mean. Yeah, yeah, and that, that I thought was a really clever, subtle way of doing it. Um, but I've heard other podcasters um, because um, this film seems to be quite kind of. Um, acclaimed really um i know that dark discussions have covered um this film as well as bloody good horror and i would definitely recommend listening to those two i know that dark discussions was um kind of more taken with it than bloody good horror uh but they have kind of suggested that this um character was not needed in terms of the plot as well but I think if you're looking at the film, and we'll talk about this um, later on, but as very much in the vein of The Babadook, that it mm-hmm. could either be read as a supernatural tale or as a psychological one, mm-hmm. um, that his character could kind of sway that potentially. But I'll maybe touch on that later on. Um, so just kind of carry on. She's um, waiting throughout the night. There's actually a scene of her eating her her lunch and she pulls a huge hair out of her sandwich. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten that. That's gross. <laughs> yeah, really gross. And again, it just seemed very disjointed in regards to the plot. It didn't relate to anything in particular. And if, if we think of the ring and a similar scene, it's relating to a particular character. Uh, yeah, uh, to be honest, you know, when I was watching this film, there was uh, maybe on reflection, actually, reflection, um, there was a scene where I think they could have tied in the homeless guy way better, uh, which is the scene with Marigold, which I know we're going to come on to. But if Marigold had said something like, I was, you know, when she was there that night, she said, and there was that big, there was a big 
homeless guy in another cell. If she'd have just said that line, it would have tied it all up a lot better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Um, but unfortunately, he was sort of out on his own. That that was the issue. <laughs> he wasn't really tied to the events directly, was he? But if if Marigold had just said that, that would have tied it all together in a in, in a, ni- a nice bow. Take take another theory. Uh, um, Jessica uh, sleeps at the desk, wakes up, and the homeless man is there. Perhaps she has dreamed the homeless man. Indeed. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, would be a possibility. Shouldn't explain it. Shouldn't have to explain it. But again, because he's not tied up with the events in a more direct way, he's just there to have something happen to him. Yeah. Um, but if it's if Marigold okay. have said that. <laughs> Uh, you know, it would have tied him into the event in Jessica's mind in a more direct way. But anyway, that, that's just the suggestion. It's way too late, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jessica is kind of spooked. Um, things start to happen. Um, like I say, the lockers, um, she's in the, the locker room at one point, opens a particular one and finds a photograph of a man and a young girl. And when she turns around all of the uh, lockers have opened. And again, that's, I thought was a very clever um, way to kind of, instead of doing a, you know, a normal jump scare, that could yeah, so easily uh, have been, you know, I thought that was quite subtle and just a more a kind of more mature approach to yeah. to generating that, that sense of dread. Yeah, it's unsettling rather than, a jump scare there would have just been, uh, okay, yeah. yeah, but that was just unsettling and 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 helped increase the level of dread rather than just be a uh, sort of a, a quick shot of adrenaline and you you kind of relax. I like the fact that a jump scare there would have made you jump and then relax, whereas just leaving it as is gives you a sense of um, it just carries on the level of dread. You know Does that make sense? Mm, it's very it's very much sustained throughout yeah. the whole. Um, film for sure and um she falls asleep a bit she hears um disembodied singing and she um starts to receive distress calls from a woman um who um as she kind of takes more calls she determines that she's been taken um hostage by a cult and she um keeps on phoning the new police station and the dispatcher um tells her again and again that all emergency calls have been routed to the um new station and obviously that's playing on her mind and she then um encounters marigold who is a prostitute that's kind of uh, loitering outside uh, the premises and they have a bit of a conversation and it's marigold who basically informs jessica that she was in um, a cell the night that the police brought in john michael payman um, who is the leader of um, a cult. And the story told to the public, Murgold says, that the cult was killed at their residence is untrue and that instead they uh, hanged themselves in their holding cell at the station one year ago to the day, each with a pillowcase wrapped around their head. And um, Jessica is spooked by the fact that Marigold hums the song that she heard uh, from earlier, which is obviously the Star Spangled Banner. And particularly the sound design, like we said, has been um, praised 
Um, was there anything in particular that kind of stood out to any of you? I think, personally, the sound design was really effective all the way through the film, and it did keep changing. It it changed quite, apart from that overarching thing. If you listen, the, the sound design and the and the, the various uh, uses of sound, uh, and I mean music, actually, specifically here, it changed to suit the film, and it worked really well. Uh, it did basically if you weren't paying attention you wouldn't have noticed it which is sometimes a sign of great music sound design uh but when you did pay attention to it it was working really well in my opinion yeah this movie does a lot of technical things really right like you said the sound design and i I think it's edited really well like on a lot of the technical fronts i think it really passes in spades I would definitely agree, and um, I think it's also um, quite commendable that it uses a lot of makeup for its effects um, and doesn't kind of go into um, CGI too much. Mm-hmm. And that, sorry, I was going to say yeah, and it, that makeup, apart from I think one shot, I think the makeup works really well. Actually, um, I'm trying to think if there's any other weakness. Nah, I wasn't a fan of that, of the special effects. There was one special effect that I don't think worked that well, but apart from that, I think it was pretty good, actually, myself. What did you think of the of the makeup, dear? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I, I like everything about that movie, especially because it doesn't explain everything. It leaves yeah. some points really open uh, for interpretation, and that's a sign of a good horror movie, I think. Mike, did you not like any of the makeup, or was it a certain what bits, or was it you just didn't think it was that good? Some of the stuff with the um, like the guys with the bags on their heads, I thought some of that stuff was interesting. I liked that, but I mean, the thing I mentioned, are we spoiling stuff? Or? I was just going to about to say, as soon as like. We get into the next bit, we definitely need a spoiler. Okay, well, something I mentioned earlier with the homeless man, the special effect that happens with him later on, I thought that looked terrible. Is the that with the see, eyes? Is that Yeah, the, yeah that that's the bit that bad. didn't work for me. Uh, and then the one you see on the cover of, of the movie, which appears in like one shot, I thought that was kind of just dumb. I don't know. I didn't like it. I like that. Yeah. It reminded me a bit of the Hellraiser, uh, the Tenobites, actually. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, yeah, definitely going into spoiler territory now. Um, so there's the official warning. Um, but with all of the kind of supernatural things going on, Jessica then calls Sergeant Cohen. Um, but because of what he said to her, she kind of thinks twice about it and doesn't um, tell him what's been going on. And she's then um, visited by Officer Price, um, who just kind of appears at the station. She accuses him of planning all the events as a kind of hazing ritual because she's a rookie. But he insists that he simply comes to check up on her as he served with her father. Um, He gives her a bit more information in regards to the cult um, and says that they were captured alive um, and that her father who died apprehending them, would be proud of her. And then as he turns to leave, Jessica is horrified to see a gaping bullet wound in the back of his head. Um, which, I mean, I I saw this coming as soon as he kind of said that he was serving with her father. Was that a yeah. bit of a shock to you? or? Mm, it wasn't a man. 
It was a shock, yeah, to me. Yeah, I was really taken aback when he turned around. Oh, that's interesting. See, a lot of the... Oh, sorry, go. I saw it coming, but the effects as such shocked me. Yeah, this really looked great. This was really a head wound. I'm seldom seeing such a head wound. I was expecting... The thing is, I think the dialogue between the pair of them felt really good and it's kind of it worked for me and they were developing a rapport so i was expecting him i thought he was a real character and he would come back later which is why i think i was so shocked when he turned around and he obviously you know he was a ghost or whatever he was that's that's i think it was that development that made it a surprise for me such a surprise for me that's really interesting how we've kind of had different um reaction to that <laughs> yeah that's i mean that kind of shows um a lot one of the big issues i had with this movie is that there are a lot of the build-up i really liked but a lot of the actual twists i mean i saw coming a mile away i mean since we're going into spoilers now i can say like the whole thing with the call where it turned out she was like i knew that she was dead the second the first call came in i called that right when that happened and so it's like, yeah. yeah, I've seen this a million times before. Yeah. And the whole thing with talking to somebody, then he walks away and it's like, oh, he's dead. Seen that a million times before, too. Totally saw that coming the second he walked in. Like, it just didn't... There, none of the twists from you worked at all. Uh, I had a slightly different perspective. When the girl started talking, I thought she was dead. I, mm. I, I did think that. Because she wasn't interacting with Jessica. But then she did start, you know, Jessica was saying things, but she was just babbling. So I thought it was like a call from beyond the grave at that point. But then when she started interacting with Jessica, I revised my opinion. <laughs> so again, I was caught out, but I had the same first impression as you. But then I, I revised it when they started interacting. So I thought, oh, well, maybe, you know, there's something else. I didn't think it was happening as she was describing but I, I thought it was slightly. I'm not quite sure what I thought, but it was it, again. It kind of came as a bit of a surprise, but not entirely, because I kind of thought that at first and then changed my mind to be caught off guard, caught wrong-footed. I, I think um, he didn't try to make this as a plot twist. I don't think the movie uh, works as a plot twist movie. It's not a Shamalaya movie. No, it's more about how it's gonna be, how it's gonna unfold, rather than what you know what the surprises are gonna be. It's more an atmospheric piece than a continuous story. No, I agree with that, but I mean. For me personally, when when you do something like that, when I see it coming a mile away, and it, especially with the phone calls to where it goes on for a long time without that being revealed, and just uh, it doesn't do anything for me. I just I don't give a shit at at a point. Mm. <laughs> um, the I mean, I had a completely different set of problems. Mine were more to do with the plotting. Um, but in all uh, all all the other things, I kind of liked about it. Actually, I thought it was a really good horror film. I, I'm, I'm showing my cards a bit early there. Um, um, but, um, yeah, I was wrong-footed, and I appreciated that. I thought that was done deliberately yeah. um, myself. But I think the fact that we, we've we all got different interpretations shows there's a sort of complexity to this film that isn't necessarily obvious. Right. And did you expect um, how the kind of phone call um, seems kind of, 
evolved? Did you expect to see the girl actually underneath the table? Um, you know what? That was good. That was actually that got really me. Nice moment. That was pretty freaky. That whole sequence was actually pretty freaky. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked how he did use some of the camera angles in in some of the shots, and not just the desk one was was one of these, but also some of the shots where she's walking through corridors with the. T- the, the torch and sort of turning the light and turning it on you're always anticipating seeing something odd and you, you know and it, I like the fact he really knew where to put the camera sometimes uh, and and the shot under the desk was great I, I was expecting something to be under that desk but only because he told us that because the desk was kind of moving mm-hmm. if it had just stayed still that would have been a complete shock to me but you know I kind of knew something was there but what was there I didn't know what to expect you know and um, further paranormal events at the station reveal that the cult worships the king of hell, um, a being said to reside in hell before Satan was sent there. And this is revealed um, in a sequence in which um, Jessica sees the interview tapes of the three cult members who were um, imprisoned uh, the night that her father died. And it's um, John Michael Payman, who's the leader, and two of the the girls. And that's quite a a kind of chilling scene. And he looks directly at the camera and he says, "Um, I like you. I'm going to come back for you and everybody that you hold dear. And that obviously plays out in how you kind of interpret the story. Um, But I really did think um, that that notion of a king of hell and that Satan, as um, in you know Christian mythology, he is meant to be Lucifer, the fallen angel, that he's still acting as a kind of soldier of God, um, that this another being that is um, more, more evil, yeah. If it, yeah, ancient evil, you know, primeval, primordial, whatever you want to say. I thought that kind of twist on, on that kind of... Um, Christian mythology was quite interesting. Yeah, and, uh, and, and it explains the ending. Uh, we, we we won't talk about the ending. I think. Huh? Am I At wrong? All. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well. Yeah. Well, we will later, right? Uh, after the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think if we give a fair enough spoiler, yeah, uh, right for the ending, um, then maybe it's fair enough. It was. Well, yeah, this was a great scene, but it's one of those ones where it's kind of, well, if that happened to you, you just leave that police station. <laughs> that was one of the issues, but, you know, yeah. then the film ends, so it's like... Well, yeah. well, she was white. We do stupid shit like that. <laughs> as, a, as, uh, as, as I told before in some occasions, uh, if in a ghost movie, uh, the people would uh, behave normal. They would leave the house yeah. after the first ghost appears. Having said, and you have haven't got a ghost movie. <laughs> no, I, having said that though, I think the whole so thinking back on it, so this is possibly why Sergeant Cohen was a right dick at the beginning, because he basically, you know, when she phones up to talk to him, he basically says, "Well, you might as well, you know, I'll expect your resignation, and if you're leaving, mm-hmm. so she, he's basically saying, you leave, you you're done, mm-hmm. which means she stays there, which kind of you know that makes the plot 
not as dumb as it for, would appear, you know, could otherwise appear. Um, right. They yeah, did give so her a reason to stay. Yes, it did. It gave her a quiet power. And, you know, she was also upholding the tradition of her dead father. Yeah. Uh, which then came it. played into the film a little later, but more obviously. But, you know, there was that sort of tie-up. He actually says, you know, I guess sometimes the apple does fall far from the tree. You know, he's basically saying, you know, you know you're not up to the same standard as your father, which, uh, you know, ties in at a personal level. Uh, so, so it makes it appear a less dumb choice than it would otherwise. No, I agree, and um, I think it was start discussions. I can't take credit for this, but they mentioned on their podcast that um, when she's having you know moments of stress, and she is at one point she actually walks outside, um, um, but comes back in. She kind of chants her um, her oath. Um, yeah, she does that near the beginning too, doesn't she? I really yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah. She was using the police oath as a as a ritual to calm herself. Yeah, that that was, and I agree, that was a really nice touch that really kind of coloured her character. Yeah, and I could kind of even see like her father teaching her that as a little girl, you know, when he was a policeman, teaching her that and like becoming part of her sort of uh, makeup, you know, her identity. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Can I just ask, you know, they call her a rookie. I always take a rookie as someone who's just started. And she was way too capable for someone who's just started. So is it someone who's like only been in the job for a few months? Is that what it means? Well, they said that that was her first shift. That was her first day on yeah, the job. Yeah, that was one of the problems I have with this film. She seemed way too capable to be her first shift. Well, I mean, mm. I'm sure she's gone to like a ca- the police academy and stuff. So, she, I mean, she's had yeah. training. Yeah, but the way she handled that homeless guy, it's just it would have made more sense if they'd have said, you know, you've been in the job a couple of months or something. It, anyway. It's it's a nitpick. It's a nitpick with the the plot. Perhaps so, it's a natural. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and it um, was just a drunk homeless guy. I mean, it wasn't like Jet Li. Yeah, but she was like hitting him. <laughs> she knew how to take him out and all sorts. <laughs> it was Fair bigger enough. than Jet Li. <laughs> it's hairier. Hairier. Yeah. <laughs> and he smelled more. Yeah, <laughs> and just a tad bit taller. <laughs> it was actually Hagrid, wasn't it? Yeah. Probably. <laughs> so, um, John uh, Michael Payman, um, in these videotapes, like I say, um, kind of, we assume it to be her father that he's directly addressing when he said that, you know, he'll come back and destroy everything the arresting officers love. And the three cult members then commit suicide. And from the phone calls that uh, Jessica receives, um, from the girl who obviously we, we later find out to be dead. Um, we know that there are several girls that are imprisoned somewhere. Um, I think they mention a farmhouse uh, where the cult is kind of keeping them. And de Blasi has publicly said that he was influenced by the Manson family in his portrayal of uh, Payman and the other cult members. Are you familiar with uh, the Manson family and the murders in 1969? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only really familiar with um, the fact that Sharon Tate was murdered when yeah. she was uh, heavily pregnant, and and uh, you know seeing Charles Manson on the TV. But it, as soon as I saw this, you know those video things in this film, I thought, yeah, that's Manson family yeah. kind of stuff for sure. Really obvious. Yeah, no, definitely. But um, Anthony Rotolo has um, come through once again with. 
a wonderful and very kind of focused TV terror segment uh, this week, um, looking at Helter Skelter, which is the 1976 television movie that was based on the 1974 true crime book by Vincent, um, I think it's Bugliosi, and Kurt Genta. So here's Anthony talking about Helter Skelter. Well, hey, folks, this is Anthony back with more TV terror. This week, the UN of Horror talks about the 2014 film The Last Shift, which has been described as John Carpenter's assault on Precinct 13 meets A Nightmare on Elm Street by way of the Manson family. Now, that's a lot to deconstruct, but I thought I'd tell you about a film about the Manson murder trial called Helter Skelter from 1976. From the crimes that horrified the world. (laughs) From the best-selling book that revealed every true and bloody detail. Now comes the motion picture that has already shocked 100 million Americans. Manson, the father, his family, and their legacy of helter-skelter. Now, Lorimar Productions brings to full life Helter-Skelter, the number one bestseller, the true story of the Charles Manson murders. I just kept stabbing her to stop screaming. I just wanted them to stop! If you don't stop, I'll have you removed. I've got a little system. Call the next witness. You think I'm kidding? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Stephen Parent, Lino LaBianca, and Rosemary LaBianca are not here with us now in this courtroom. But from their graves, they cry out for justice. You have just judged yourself. The world had never before witnessed anything like the Manson family. And God help us all if there's anything like it ever again. You say there are just a few? Well, there are many, many more. And they're running in the streets. They're all running in the same direction. And they're running right at you. Helter Skelter, the true story, the whole story. Based on Prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi's book on the Manson family murders and the ensuing trial, 
Helter Skelter remains a gripping piece of television, recounting some of the most horrendous crimes ever recorded. Even in our day, saturated with forensic and procedural programming, the docudrama still has the power to chill, a credit to its smart script, direction, and performances. We open with narration by George DiCenzo as Bugliosi, who takes us back to that quiet night in August 1969, when five people were brutally murdered in the Benedict Canyon home of Roman Polanski near Hollywood. Among the victims were Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, and coffee heiress, Abigail Folger. We'll learn later that four Manson followers were responsible for the slayings, three committing the acts while one stood as lookout. The next morning, a maid is dropped off at the home and unlocks the security gate to perform her rounds. The next thing we know, she's running into the street crying, murder, murder, as the camera settles upon the blood-smeared button used to close the gate. Next, the cops are on the scene and we're given a tour of the blood-soaked living room. A detective brings Polanski's business manager, looking out of place in his white tennis clothes, through the scene to identify the victims. They go one by one. Some are so disfigured that he can't be positive. The last one he identifies is eight months pregnant, Sharon Tate, and the sight of her causes him to break down and run outside to be sick. It's graphic material that establishes the violence that was visited upon these innocents. We also see the effects of Manson's follow-up spree the next night, when supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and wife Rosemary are found in their home by their children, with the cryptic words helter-skelter smeared in blood on the refrigerator. From here, the film takes us through its chronology with Dateline title cards. We follow the Manson family arrests and the resulting trial with scenes told in flashback. There's a great moment in which we're given Manson's interpretation of the Book of Revelation and how the Beatles are its fulfillment, sending messages to the tuned-in about the coming race war. The film is notable for its performances. George DiCenzo, who you might know from Close Encounters of the Third Kind as Bugliosi, provides the main perspective through which we view the ups and downs of the trial. He's a self-contained contrast to the erratic Charles Manson, eerily channeled by Railsback. Railsback you may know from films like The Stuntman and Life Force. Now, if you've never seen Manson in action, you might be tempted to believe that Railsback is just chewing scenery here. But he's brilliant in how he captures the wild-eyed mania and the off-kilter utterances of the maniac messiah. Also notable is Nancy Wolfe as Susan Atkins, the murderess who kills Sharon Tate without remorse. There's a chilling scene in which she confides it all to fellow inmate Ronnie Howard, played wonderfully by Sandra Blake. She takes it all in, but she's petrified and sickened by the account. Now, the final stretch of the film is decidedly a courtroom drama, but it's the weirdest one you'll ever witness. The antics and the outbursts of Manson and the girls are recreated, including a moment when Manson lunges over a table in the courtroom to attack the judge before being tackled to the ground by the bailiffs. Now, even though we know how the trial ends, we're relieved just the same to hear a verdict of guilty read. And we learn that it would have led to the death penalty for four of the convicted if California had not abolished capital punishment in 1972. 
downgrading their sentences to life in prison. This ending is designed to give us mixed feelings about the justice meted out. The film was made in 1976, but we're told that these murderers would be eligible for parole hearings beginning in 1978. Thankfully, Charlie Manson is still there. Susan Atkins died in prison in 2009. This Lorimar production was directed by Tom Grise, who also directed such films as Breakheart Pass and 100 Rifles, from a teleplay by J.P. Miller, which closely adapts the book. The film garnered multiple Emmy nominations and won an Edgar Award for Best Television Feature or Miniseries. It's available from Warner Brothers on DVD and via streaming services. Have you seen it? That's 1976's Helter Skelter. So thanks to Anthony for another great TV terror segment. So have you guys seen um, Helter Skelter or read the book? I haven't done any of those, but um, listening to uh, Anthony's uh, segment, and I've also discussed it with him um, uh, since. Uh, it's a great segment, great segment. Well, really, if you don't see this film after <laughs> that segment, I don't think Anthony's going to convince you to watch anything else because that uh, it sounds like a really terrific film, and it's one I intend to watch this week, and uh, so I'll be discussing it next week. I hope. Um, but it's a really intriguing case, and I don't know much about it. Anthony tells me watching the film really primes you for the, you know, it, it's kind of very true to life. So one of the reasons I want to watch the film is because I want to find out more about uh, what happened and the events. Uh, 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 you know, this thing that basically closed the 60s for a lot of people, uh, in effect, you know, the downside of the 60s. Um so I am really yeah, after this segment. I'm re- and talking to Anthony about it. I'm really keen to see this film. Uh, I saw it uh, in the early '80s on video here in Germany, but it was uh, even for a TV movie. It was cut, and I remember almost nothing but the Beatles uh, song. And the book uh, never was released here, and I never had the chance to read it. I only know uh, the Manson case from news sites I discovered on the internet in the last 20 years. I I do remember as a boy, I think it was probably when the book came out, uh, it was serialised in one of our newspapers, one of our more lurid tabloids, News of the World, I think. Mm. And I do remember the TV adverts for it and then playing the Beatles' Helter Skelter on the TV adverts and being kind of intrigued, but I was like nine. So it was more the music than, you know, and like, what, what, what's happening? Because they, obviously, they don't say, they just say, we'll tell you about what happened. You know, those were the adverts about it. But I, did, I had no conception of what happened, but I was thinking, oh, that music sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> One of the strangest Beatles songs. <laughs> it is a song, Yes. Well, no, there's, there, there is a lot of, uh, yeah, the White Album, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll definitely recommend the book. Um, and the 
television film stays very close to that as, as Anthony says, which I think is one of the reasons that it's, you know, such a kind of um, clever and not only entertaining watch, but it really holds up. And um, I think that a kind of complimentary docudrama to watch alongside um, the 1976 film is Manson, which I think was made in 2009. And it basically narrates um, Linda Kasabian's time with um, the family. And she, I think, joined them a month before uh, the, the Tate murders. And she was the uh, the driver and the lookout uh, during that time. And she's been hiding for however many years. And it's just really interesting to hear her kind of first account. And then it kind of um, reveals that in various you know dramatic segments. But that was a really fascinating watch. And I think that, like I say, would be um, a nice one if you're interested in, in that area to watch with Helter Skelter. Um, but if uh, anybody wants to kind of look into the subject in more detail but doesn't want to kind of dive into the book um the last podcast on the left has three episodes on um the manson family covering uh, charles manson's early years um the family and the murders and court cases but please be aware that it is not pc at all it's hilarious the podcast because two comedians and their friend mm-hmm. who's a researcher um but yeah they are definitely not PC. And um, You Must Remember This, interestingly, explores the murders around the Hollywood music and movie scene at the time. And um, then True Murder is a podcast that's hosted by journalist and author Dan Zipansky, who interviews true crime authors about the books. So it's a nice one to kind of um, listen to, you know, if you're not too sure about buying something. And in Charles Manson Behind Bars, Mark Hewitt comes on to talk about his book, which covers the um, early life of uh, Charles Manson and also recent interviews with him in prison. So, um, again, I'll post links to those. But um, just for anybody interested in the kind of uh, Manson murders and family and that, because, yeah, because it's something that interests me, the kind of cool aspect of it as well. And that's what I really found interesting about this film, because allegedly with the Tate murders, the um, members of the family that did it were going to kind of hang the bodies up. But it was so messy that they and they were so tired, apparently, that they decided not to. So I thought that was quite interesting just reading that recently doing a bit of research and then they did by any chance watch texas chainsaw massacre before this did they? <laughs> so i mean i mean that seriously why would why would you do that unless you've been influenced in some way it's that's the thing i just find it so fascinating and i thought that was really interesting considering de blasi's um noted kind of references to the manson killings in the way that the um cult members hang themselves in this mm-hmm but that might just be kind of me connecting things. But This definitely reminded me of a lot of cult-type films like Race with the Devil and, and you know, we talked about The Wicker Man uh, and The Wicker Tree and uh, the recent one by, from Ben Wheatley, The Kill List. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminded me of all those things. It, it's, it sparked, you know, thoughts about all those things as I was, as I was watching it. No, and um, another one I would really recommend is uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene from 2011 and it stars the i think it's the eldest um Olsen. Olsen, yes, it, yeah. the eldest, millions of them um and 
she is fantastic in it and it's a very very quiet film but really really creepy um it's just somebody who's escaped from a cult and it's them kind of transitioning back into their normal life and being terrified of being kind of dragged back in so it's a really interesting look at the other side of it and mm. um, that's from 2011 so that, that was a really really good film there is another i bet anthony's but i haven't talked about this or he will get to it um there is another great tv film about cults but about jimmy jones and jonestown mm. uh powers booths in it but i can't remember the name of the film uh as, as jimmy jones you know jim jones uh drinking the kool-aid um that's another great film i haven't seen it in many years but it's a really good tv film i think we need uh, longer show notes <laughs> 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 so um coming to the final act of the film um again another spoiler warning jessica um is taken hostage by a apparently remaining member of the cult who then commits suicide in front of her um and again this particular scene has been kind of picked out um you know i've read in, in reviews and such as kind of showing that this is potentially not happening and it's all in her head. And it's kind of here, I think, that you can kind of argue for one way or the other because I would argue that you could read it as a supernatural film or as a psychological one. But I'd be interested to hear what you think. I uh, Firstly, I thought the scene was really good. It was It came out of nowhere, kind of, but it really worked for me. But I could kind of see how it wouldn't work for someone at all because it's so kind of disparate and, you know, this woman just appears and does this thing and then does this other thing. Um, but I thought it was a really effective scene. That It was really, the actress, she didn't have many lines, but they just got, a, there was a certain look about her uh, yeah. that I thought really worked. I think it was her eyes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the way she sort of, her face acting. Uh, that was a nice piece of acting. Yeah, uh, But to get back to your question, yeah, I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's one or the other, but <laughs> it's ambiguous. So after hearing screams from the holding cell, Jessica is attacked by the homeless man and she finds his body um, hanging in the locked cell. She leaves the station, but returns when she hears the phone ringing. And this is when we find out that the girl is um, dead and we have that horrific scene where she's actually um kind of chased by that crawling girl who's all uh, mutilated and i thought it was really really cringy yeah which we actually see we see that near near the beginning don't we just following down the corridor but only briefly and the once until this point yeah yeah um and again like we've seen that really sets up that sense of dread you're always looking for things um but then her um so when this happens, when um, Jessica is kind of chased by um, the dead girl, she attempts to leave again, but the doors um, this time don't open. And she receives a call from her uh, mobile phone from her dead father, who demands justice for his death. And this is the bit, I think, even more so maybe than the scene with the, the court member who is meant to be alive and kills herself. Um that is really strange because all the way through we're kind of asking ourselves why does she stay okay we've got honor we've got her father's memory but really would you really stay under all these circumstances yeah no, i'd quit 
<laughs> I would run, run as fast as I never run before. <laughs> Isn't this the point now, though, where she physically can't leave? Yeah, no. the door is locked. They're literally, and she even shoots at the door, and the the bullets have no effect. Um, which I was kind of expecting us to come back at some point and see bullet holes in the door. Uh, actually, you know that kind of vibe. Uh, we didn't. That doesn't actually come back. But um, yeah. Yeah, it was the point where she should have left, really, frankly. But um, even so, the door's not opening. You know, you would just sit next to the door. You wouldn't be going back in and I certainly wouldn't pick up the phone again. Exactly. And Find yourself a nice corner. A lot of ammo. <laughs> back against a wall. Right. But, yeah, I don't know. The fact that her dead father is calling her and putting her in jeopardy. Mm. That was the thing that kind of got me, and that would have made, I think, should have made her realise that, you know, you shouldn't be going back in. Yeah. I mean, one of the other problems I had with the film was the fact that these weird things happen to her, and then she seems okay and kind of stays there. Like, there was a whole, that sequence I've mentioned, like, I, I said it happened early on, and I, 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 to myself, I said, how can this sustain for an hour? It's, it's incredibly tense. But then it relaxes a bit. Uh, but then she's kind of flirting with Price, after that happened and it was like that isn't just the hazing thing that's something weird happened there you know but she seems okay that kind of didn't quite work for me but this is a minor nitpick i'm really not that bothered by it but it, it just seemed a bit odd no completely but i mean aside from that what did you kind of think of the character of jessica and the actress playing her she was very good I thought she was a really great actress. Uh, I think her name is Juliana Harkavy. Harkavy. I don't know how you say that last name, but the only other thing I've seen her in is, is Dolphin Tail and Dolphin Tail Two. Those are the only other things I've ever seen her in. So this was. Uh, I was pretty surprised that I actually liked her in this. Uh, don't I ask think, me why I've seen either one of those movies. <laughs> I, I, I think she she was in four episodes of Walking Dead. Somewhere in uh, season three or four. Yeah, she was. She was was a fairly minor character. Yeah, I totally Uh, forgot her. (laughs) Yeah, but I thought she was really good. Really excellent. Brilliant piece of casting. The whole way she was shot, her acting style, the way she delivered her lines, excellent. I couldn't fault it. Really couldn't fault it. She had to to carry the whole movie by herself. And she did. And it was good. You know, what she did was really good. I really bought her as this character. I yeah. really bought every aspect of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And she's really beautiful as well, which I must say. But Well, it did help with her close-ups. Her eyes were really... Um, they looked really great, close-ups. So that kind of helps with the close-ups. But that's not to say she was be- She was a pretty face. She was act. You know, that was good acting. Yeah, no, no, definitely. Um, she reminded me of... I think it's Juliana... I've forgotten her name. She used to be in ER. She was in a pretty bad horror. Well, I think I'm not a film called Ghost Ship. In the in the oh, in the, in okay. the I think I know who you're talking about. Uh, she reminded me of her oh, a bit. Is she in The Good Wife now? I think she is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Julianna Margulies. That's it. Yeah, she reminded me a bit of her when she was younger. Yeah. No, definitely. Is she in Ghost Ship. Julianna yeah. Margulies. Yeah. Ghost, oh, I was Ghost, Ship, Ghost Ship is the movie I only saw 20 minutes of. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've seen it. I just know she, I've seen a clip. Long. And I've, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've only ever seen a clip, but I remember 
she's a very striking looking woman too and I this actress reminded me of her and the way she carried herself and stuff so um, at this point um, she is basically terrorised by the spirits of the three dead um, court members and we see them with uh, bags over the head and it seems to have been incorporated into their kind of disfigurement and uh, I thought it was very much reminiscent of Hellraiser, like um, mm. you were saying, Mark. Um, In the Chatterer, specifically. Yeah, yeah well, just, just the general kind of um, visceral kind of body horror. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean uh, when I was watching, I was thinking, this guy, this could be a quite a good mo- way, modern updating of the Cenobites was mm. actually what I thought when I was watching it, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, I thought that in terms of uh, John Michael Payman, the the main one, and obviously we see that um, makeup on the poster of the father film. I thought that, that was really effective. I thought it was pretty terrifying, um, but I guess I'm alone there. No, no, I liked it. I, I think I'm alone there. <laughs> no, Mike's alone. Only yeah. Mike clone doesn't like. It. What does that ever happen? <laughs> <laughs> But um, and the way he has like, the uh, pentagram, I think it is carved into his face. I thought that was a really nice touch. And then um, he's obviously kind of lunges at her and makes an awful kind of screaming noise. Um, she runs out and she believes that um, I should say she runs out of the room where he is, um, and she believes that. Um, several cult members have kind of assaulted the station, which takes us back, I suppose, to assault on Precinct 13, that kind of reference. Mm-hmm. And um, she shoots at them um, as they're firing back at her. And then, final spoiler, um, she's shot herself by Sergeant Cohen, who has returned. And she looks at the one of the dead cult members, and it's actually the hazmat team. And she's murdered the whole uh, hazmat team, basically. And then we hear the um, the cult's hymn to the King of Hell. Um, I think she's actually humming it herself. Yeah. As um, Sergeant Cohen calls in that an officer um, is down. He doesn't um, kind of make any reference for us to believe that she's actually dying or will die, but we're not quite sure. And then we see Payman and the two other um, court members behind Sergeant Cohen. Um, they just kind of step in front of her and put a pillow around her head. Um, and I personally thought that was a great ending. I didn't appreciate it as much when I first watched it, but as I kind of thought more about it and the events of the film... I was much more appreciative. What did you think? Yeah, that leaves uh, the whole movie open for interpretation. You can say, is she has she gone mad because of her past with the killing of her father, or is there really an, uh, a ghost-like apparition in this uh, um, police station? I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, a lot. I thought it was ambiguous too. I I haven't made a decision of whether it was super. I thought it was firmly supernatural through most of the film, but mm. uh, by the end, I don't know, and I don't really mind which one it is. Frankly, mm. I, I I don't feel I need to decide one way or the other. I think it works both ways quite well. Mike, did you? What did? Because I know you aren't as taken with the film as perhaps the rest of us are. What did you think of the ending? Yeah, I thought the ending was 
I thought it was dumb and generic. I mean, it was again something else that I've like because I was really with the movie at first. Then it got to around the 30, 45 minute mark, and I was like, okay, guys, let's do something new. But hey, if as long as it does something cool at the ending, it, it has like a good payoff, I'm fine with that. And you know, and then you get the whole scene where she's kind of taken hostage by this chick, and I was like, Oh, awesome. So it's going to lead into like a siege thing where it's, she's fighting supernatural elements and real people. That's cool. And then just to end up at this, another ending I've seen a thousand times, it was like, oh, okay. That was really nothing special at all. It's really difficult for horror films, isn't it? Because, um, I, you know, if you end, end ambiguously, it is like lots of other horror films, loads of that. But, you know, sometimes that's the best thing anyway. And it's really the quality of the film then that uh, determines it. As long as they don't do anything really goofy at the end, uh, you know, I'm not that bothered by the fact it's an ending we've seen many times before. It's really about the whole delivery. I, w- I wasn't that too yeah. bothered myself. I just wish it could have done something new. Just like at least one thing. I didn't think it did anything new. I agree that the, when the uh, the real person, you know, the apparently real person turned up and took a hostage, that was kind of, wow, this has really changed, you know. And, uh, right. and if they'd have followed that, it would have been uh, quite a different film perhaps. But uh, I-, I was happy with it as it was anyway. But I, I can see your point. I-, I think I agree with your point, but I liked it anyway. Yeah, I, me too. It's it's I'm, uh, simply the the whole atmosphere of the movie, the whole way it was shot, the whole way it was played, was so great. Uh, I, I could uh, look over the ending. I I liked it. Yeah, I didn't feel I needed to overlook it. I, I thought it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with um, Mark, and I think that it could have gone um, a completely different route with the. Um, member holding her hostage but it's shortly after that i believe that she finds all of the photographs of um the murdered victims um of the cult members and um she kind of blacks out and then when she wakes up they're all kind of lined up in rows and uh, kind of taken with the ending as well i thought very much that the film like I say, can be read either way. And I really appreciate films that kind of tread that line, like The Exorcism of Emily Rose, um, with the kind of religious and scientific debates. And um, like we've mentioned before with The Babadook. Mm. And um, I think you really could read it that it wasn't supernatural. I mean, she's obviously psychologically scarred by her father's um, death. And the fact that she had access to all of the... Um, files relating to his death she could have literally read up on them um, mm. while she was in there which kind of begs the question of why they would send his daughter to that police station um, the, the, there is one thing if if I think just reading the film as is it kind of feels more likely to be supernatural than uh, madness if they'd have put in a few pointers to indicate she knew about these guys uh you know, all the f- pictures seem familiar, or if she had on her person a picture related to it, that would have been made it much more ambiguous. Uh, it does l- appear to me to be slightly more likely to be supernatural than madness, but there was enough in there that it still could be taken either way. But uh, making it even more ambiguous by sort of introducing uh, some way of us knowing that she knew about some of this already 
would have made it even more ambiguous and probably would have served the film a little better. Um, I think it would be interesting to see the movie a second time. Yes, you might. I might pick up things I wasn't aware of. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, because with with all we know now, we can see it in a completely different way. Probably. Indeed. I think that's maybe why I'm reading it um, as kind of more ambiguous because I I have seen it two times. Oh. Um, <laughs> so um, I think those things really stand out when you come to it again because maybe because you're looking for them, but maybe because you've got that kind of awareness. Um, but like I said, I thought it was a really interesting, clever, and kind of subtle way to um, to kind of frame the film in terms of its yeah. supernatural aspects. I suspect on rewatch, one of the first things I'm going to pay attention to on a rewatch is to listen much more carefully to that initial conversation with her mother. I've got a feeling there was something in there that wouldn't have struck you necessarily the first time. I could be wrong. I don't know, uh, but it just. It feels like that there was something there maybe I, I missed, not missed, but wasn't aware of that becomes more obvious on rewatch. But I could be wrong. No, no, definitely. That's true. Um, is there anything else anyone wants to talk about or shall we move into feedback? Yeah, we got some feedback from Matt who was on uh, one of our previous shows, the Hellraiser show. Uh, he sent us, he, he couldn't come on for this show, but he sent us some, an MP3, some feedback. So uh, here it is. This is Matt from London, UK, wishing all United Nations of Horror listeners a happy new year. I hope your festive season was full of Krampuses, Black Christmases and rare exports. I wanted to share some of my thoughts with you on 2014's Last Shift, so without further ado, let's crack on. I watched it for the first time a few months ago whilst browsing on Netflix. What caught my eye was the striking poster art that great image of a man's demonic face with a five-pointed star carved right into the flesh. As a fan of the occult subgenre, I was immediately intrigued and wanted to find out more, and what I got was a tense, atmospheric and unsettling thriller. We find ourselves with Jessica, Officer Lauren, a rookie cop whose first assignment is to spend the night alone in a closed-down police station, the last shift of the title, if you like. We learn not long into the movie that her father, who was also a police officer, was killed exactly one year ago by self-styled King of Hell cult leader John Payman. John Payman and some of his followers then ended up committing group suicide together in their holding cells, but not before making an oath to come back and destroy everything the arresting officers loved. And so begins the haunting. Right from the beginning the sense of dread is palpable, largely due to some very effective sound design and sharp editing. It's not too rushed, but when things do start to go crazy it rarely lets up. I don't want to spoil things if you've not yet seen the movie, so I won't reveal too much, but there were a few things I particularly enjoyed that I'd like to give a nod to. Firstly, the restraint of the director, Anthony de Blasi, by way of example, in the locker room scene, early on when Jessica finds her father's photograph, she turns around only to find every single locker in the room is now open. This could so easily have been done as a lazy jump scare moment with a loud bang, but the director chose to take a more subtle approach. While there are plenty of loud scares throughout the movie, they rarely feel manipulative or forced, and the director is not afraid of using quiet moments for maximum effectiveness. Another scene I really enjoyed was Jessica's first exchange with Officer Price. There's a naturalness to their conversation. You really feel like they're getting on well together and that they could become friends. 
Then there's a rather unexpected payoff as Officer Price takes his leave that I absolutely didn't see coming. It's the unexpected twists like that that elevate this movie above the average. I also enjoyed what I'm going to call the mannequin scene. This one had shades of A Nightmare on Elm Street. We see a body in a bag being dragged along a corridor by persons unseen and then slowly lifted in the air where it starts to move around jerkily like a mannequin on strings. The movement of the body reminded me very much of some of the character animation in the excellent Silent Hill video games as well. And there's also another nod to A Nightmare on Elm Street with a particularly haunting sing-song motif that really gets under the skin. It's not the song itself as such that gets to you, but the context in which it's being sung which is particularly effective. Then there was a moment that reminded me somewhat of the shadowy creature in the French film Martyrs. Jessica is walking down a corridor and we see her being followed by a strange feral girl type creature. She's all dirty and rotten and her joints and bones are making cracking noises as she moves. It really is a horrible sound, akin to nails being dragged down a chalkboard. And that, coupled with the way the girl creature is moving, make for a very shudder-inducing scene. It's also worth mentioning the makeup design, which I thought was rather good. In particular, there's a running theme of people with bags on their heads. But rather than it just being a bog-standard bag, in many scenes they've styled it in such a way that it looks reminiscent of Chatterer in Hellraiser, with a gaping, bloodied maw and a shiny grey, dead skin-like appearance. So although there's nothing particularly new or surprising to see in this movie, the way everything has been executed means your attention is, for the most part, fully engaged. If I had any criticism, it would be that the movie feels possibly a tad on the long side. I also found the subplot with the homeless guy kind of pointless as it didn't seem to have anything to do with the main story and ultimately was left unexplained. However, all in all, I enjoyed this movie a lot and would definitely recommend it to other fans of horror. In terms of a rating, I'd probably go with a solid 6 out of 10. Although the director hasn't made many films yet, it's clear to see he has a lot of potential and will, hopefully, only get better from here. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what he does in the future. The only other film of his that I've seen is Dread from 2009, which I remember enjoying, I think, but I'll definitely go back and check it out again, especially as it's based on Clive Barker's short story of the same name. So that's it from me, folks. Thanks to all of the United Nations of Horror team and contributors who put so much effort into this fantastic podcast, and long may it continue. Goodbye, Auf Wiedersehen, and au revoir. Until next time. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life we're only waiting for this moment to arise okay so that was feedback from matt uh thanks for the christmas wishes matt uh, i mean we've already did black christmas uh but uh i haven't got around to krampus myself but i have seen rare exports um any comments on this feedback for anyone he sounds yeah, like I- a natural on the mic oh he is yeah <laughs> it's great it was great in the uh, um hellraiser episode Yes, um, it's interesting. Actually, actually, you know, I I did say that that in one of the scenes it, it reminded me of Chatter, and I realised that I'd actually got that from my. It did remind me of the Cenobites for sure, and I was going to comment on that. Mm-hmm. But Chatter specifically was, I'd I've I listened to this feedback earlier, before this podcast, so um, I think I picked up the Chatterer thing from him. So credit to Matt for the Chatterer. 
And I like the comparisons to uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Because mm. for me, Anthony de Blasi is a guy like Wes Craven or John Carpenter in his early career. Is a guy who has a touch for horror. Yeah, and I think he's probably influenced uh, as yeah. well. The, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is Assault on Precinct 13 in places, uh, certainly at the beginning, and also actually the, the, the very end part where the um, the lady shot that reminded me very much of the. The shooting of the little girl in Assault on mm-hmm. Precinct 13. Uh, I've forgotten to mention that. Um, and he also mentions the Silent Hill video game too. That's a good, some good references there from Matt uh, mm. about other, other sort of horror sort of media. So yeah. Matt kind of liked it. Um, uh, what did he say? Six out of ten. So he kind of liked it, and he, and he, I think he he think this this is a pretty decent director too. So it was kind of cool. Right, there was uh, some other written feedback we, we we got on Facebook. The first one I wanted to mention was from Kieran Fisher. I'll just read this out as it was posted on Facebook. Uh, so from Kieran. This movie made my top ten of For Horror in 2015. I loved it. It's like if Clive Barker sneaked into the world of John Carpenter and unleashed a tour de force of unrelenting horror. Between this and We Are Still Here, I'm back on board with Supernatural Movies. So yeah, I loved it, lol. The director's movie Dread is also worth a watch, which uh, we've already discussed. Uh, so thanks, Kieran, for that. Uh, was there any other feedback? Yeah, we've also had um, some feedback from Jeff Weir, who says uh, minimal special effects during the first half of the film. Most of the atmosphere was attained through camera angles, sound effects and good acting. In the later half, it brought on more with special effects and jump scares, but paced them out so it never became too overwhelming, keeping the viewer on their toes, wondering what was going to happen next. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Mm, so thanks to Jeff as well. Yeah, I did like the fact he didn't rely on... I think there was only one jump scare that was obviously constructed as a jump scare, which is a face against the window. But uh, I think he earned it. You know, It didn't feel a cheap, like a cheap shot to me definitely uh, i'd agree okay so that was um anthony de blasi's 2014 film last shift um do you want to give your ratings guys matt what did you think i thought my my feelings on this film are i'm gonna just basically read out my letterbox review because i think it says it all uh, it's a solid horror that builds and builds and uh, it earns the few jump scares it uses it's a it's a great central performance uh, and it enhances the movie uh, quite a bit and as the, and, and it's also enhanced by the low-key tense direction excellent use of music uh, it's been a couple of days since i've watched this film now and i have my mind goes back to it and i think it's improved a little since my first initial review um if it has any downside uh, to me it was slightly too episodic and its episodes were a bit repetitious these are minor quibbles i i I hasten to add um and i think the central character puts up with a little too many odd offense without actually leaving the building but as i say these are minor quibbles i'm gonna give it eight out of ten high praise um mike what did you think I thought it started out well. Uh, as I said before, I, I thought it had a lot of really great technical aspects. Um, I like the way it's shot. I like the great outlook it has. I think it's a it's a look that I've seen a lot of times before, but it really it, it works here. Uh, it really makes it its own, and it creates a really nice atmosphere. 
I think it's the it's edited very well. As we mentioned the bo- uh, before, the sound design is great. The acting is really good, but that really only goes so far for me. Like I, I would say, I like the first half hour. Then you get to everything else after that, and I think it just nothing really builds up to anything worth it. I just thought it kept taking generic turn after generic turn, and by the end of it, I was when it, when we got to that final conclusion, I was just like. Wow! Fuck! Really? That's all that we did. All that just to get to here. Uh, that's it. And uh, I, I hate when I get to uh, when I see a lot of potential, and then we just get to something that's like, oh, okay. Well, seen that before. Uh, so I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna give it a five out of ten. I just I don't. I'm actually surprised that my rating is as close to Matt's as it is because I thought he liked it way more than me. But yeah, I don't. I it was it wasn't terrible. It it was just I don't know a lot of wasted potential. That's interesting. Um, how close, like you say, your uh, score is two months. But, um, Dee, I know that you really liked it. Yeah, I really loved it. I, I'm, I'm a, a sucker for movies who drag me in with their atmosphere. And I can oversee uh, story details in such movies. If uh, a movie um, delivers for me, if he uh, is able to put me in and, and entertain me for the whole time just with looks and, and sounds and acting it's enough for me and uh, I would say it was also in my top 10 for this year it uh, made pl- uh, play 7 and for me it's an 8 out of, out of 10 and yeah. uh, to, to add uh, Anthony de Blasi is for me the new Carpenter, Craven uh, Hooper also, I would say it's mm. a director to watch I yeah there's one point I want to pick up that you just said really we are kind of lucky in that we're living in an age of um, the children of John Carpenter there's lots mm. of directors around now that are obviously influenced by John Carpenter often to to make to to raise them up above the and this is one of those i think this is this is the director that has an influence from john carpenter and i'm thankful for john carpenter for uh producing you know this generation of directors actually the the, the few directors that are, are picking up that baton and running with it and this is one of them no completely i mean um i've you now seen it twice and i gave my thoughts on it like um max said on a previous episode um but i think it really holds up second time and i think you will find things in there on a second watch um like you were saying mark there is definitely more ambiguity um it's very subtle it's very creepy i know that matt mentioned the scene which um, we haven't touched on where there is um a body that appears to be being dragged and then it kind of lifts itself up in the air as if somebody's picking it up and it kind of hovers in the air and I thought that bit was really, really personally quite quite chilling that kind of stayed with me. And there aren't many kind of, you know, modern horrors that will have that effect on you. Um, and so it was really clever in terms of its scares, very mature. The single location really worked, just kept everything simple. Um, and I really enjoyed... Um, the take on um like i said that notion of christian um mythology and how they just twisted it slightly but didn't expand on it it wasn't you know a verbose kind of um take on it so i think i would also be at an eight and it was also in my top 10 from last year as well so um 
in regards to um, the fact that we're now a few episodes in, um, we've mentioned other podcasts on the show before, uh, but we want to do this on um, a regular basis and we'll be recommending other podcasts with trailers and a brief discussion going forward. And first up this week will be Mark's fantastic The Good, The Bad and The Odd podcast. So, Mark, would you like to introduce your trailer? Absolutely. This is my trailer. Now, um, we've it's kind of interesting that we've, we've been going for four years and we made this trailer right at the beginning, but it still holds up and is true and reflects the nature of our podcast. So in terms of our content, we kind of changed, but in terms of our, our style and um uh, how we approach the material we haven't so i i this i've seen no reason to change our trailer and i kind of like our trailer so here's our trailer so you, this i think will give you a feel for the way we approach uh, our material and i hope you like it swear you'll listen to the good the bad and the odd the good he has the cruelty of jack nicholson's joker the Wit of Mark Hamill's Joker, yeah, and the laugh of Cesar Romero. <laughs> the bad. He's bald. He's got a cat. He lives in a volcano. What else you need? And the odd. I've that seen bits great. of it. It's really stupid. Swear to me. Just a couple of guys talking about movies. You can find us on www.thegoodthebadandtheodd.com. What a beautiful podcast okay so i hope that gives you a flavor uh, of the podcast I've, I've kind of talked about it before on this one so i won't spend too long on it but essentially we cover a bit of this a bit of this a bit of everything we mostly do movies but we do tv as well and sometimes things like video games and anime and stuff like that uh some of the ones we got coming up soon are probably we're going on into the second and third and fourth seasons of clone wars is coming up we're doing ash versus the evil dead at some point soon uh, well, real soon, uh, and we've got uh, the next instalment of Kingology, Stephen King's chronological book series, which Rebecca's coming on, aren't you, Rebecca, for to talk about Pet Cemetery in a week or two. Uh, so we've got a lot going on. Uh, we are uh, do much less podcasts than we used to, but we have got 365 shows under our belt, uh, so we've got a fair few <laughs> if you wanted to go back and try and catch them all. Yeah, and I can definitely recommend it because I've been listening for a long time now and I'm really looking forward to your um, X-Files. Yes, and I think you've offered to come on. So uh, I'm, I, I, I am, uh, I've already talked about it in the beginning of this trailer, uh, sorry, beginning of this podcast about, you know, my new box set. So I'm, I'm really keen to start watching that. So I think in about three or four weeks, we'll probably do the first podcast for our first half of season one of the X-Files. So that'll be coming too. Brilliant. And um, we're also working on kind of gearing up the website in preparation for getting on iTunes, which I think now will be February, so not long. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of this, we want to encourage people to visit the site more and we welcome articles, reviews, or regular content from listeners. So if this um, interests you, then please do get in touch. Um, and in particular, regular Facebook group Wonder. And writer Dan Stout has submitted feedback in um, a previous show. And I know he's now working on some great content for the website that I'm very much looking forward to. Oh, awesome. Yeah, particularly, I think, um, around uh, the Grand Guignol. Nice. Right on. Yeah, with, I think he's trying to get an interview um, 
before he submits it. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but he's also created um, a kind of catalogue of podcast recommendations on his uh, personal blog. And I'm forever searching for new podcasts um, and having to kind of search and paste website addresses into social media chats when I'm recommending them to people. Um, so Dan's list is really brilliant. Um, and he welcomes new suggestions from people. So you can find Dan on the um, United Nations of Horror Facebook page. Like I say, he's always on there. Or you can find his list um, at his blog. Um, and I will put the link to that on the um, Facebook page. So please do share that and let him know as to any new or old podcast recommendations that um, you come across. Okay, so um, we'll be back next week with the first episode in our Asian horror series with the Japanese film Onibaba from 1964. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts about Last Shift, Onibaba, or anything horror-related. So please email your messages in MP3 format to unitednationsofhorror at gmail.com um, or just drop us um, an email if you prefer to write that. Um, and also um, do check out the website for all the latest podcast um, information, articles and reviews. And that's at unitednationsofhorror.wordpress.com. And um, be sure, of course, to join the Facebook group. And that is www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash UN of horror to interact with um, many other movie horror fans and just come and have a chat, basically. Um, so today, thanks to um, Dia, to Mark and to Mike, um, and also to contributions from uh, Matt, Kieran and Jeff. And as always, thank you for listening and we will see you next time here at the United Nations of Horror. Okay, bye. Wiedersehen. See you. <laughs> when I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide.